0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Bowtech Archery prides themselves on offering a bow for everyone. Whether you have a short draw length, a long draw length, pull 70 pounds or 40 pounds, you're a bow hunter or a target archer, they offer a bow that can be customized to fit your body type. On top of that, their deadlock technology allows you to fine-tune your aeroflight. Visit bowtecharchery.com and check out the sr 350 and the CP-28. Bowtech Archery, refuse to follow. let's run there head to brooksrunning.com to learn more
1: this is the average conservationist podcast brought to you by outdoor class and in partner with two percent for conservation outdoor class is the new single source of premium outdoor education from trusted knowledgeable experts for hunters committed to improving their skills outdoor class is the only subscription based e-learning platform that provides unlimited access to video lessons from the world's most respected experts covering topics across a hunter's entire journey Learn from industry leaders like Corey Jacobson, Randy Newberg, Remy Warren, and other prominent personalities and organizations. Sign up today and use code AVERAGE to save 20%. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% What's up, everybody? Happy Wednesday. Welcome back to the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. As Conservation Month rolls along here on the podcast, um, today I am joined by E.J. Porth, and E.J. is the Associate Director for the Gallatin Valley Land Trust. And for you regular listeners um, of the show, you have probably heard um, a great number of previous guests talk about um, the GVLT, the Gallatin Valley Land Trust, uh, as one of the organizations that um, their company is giving back to, uh, especially um, organizations or companies uh, that operate in or around kind of the, the greater Bozeman area there in Montana. So uh, when it came time um, for Org Month this year, uh, the GVLT was one that I certainly wanted to um, have on. I mean, not only are a ton of 2% organizations or 2% businesses giving back to GVLT. Um, the executive director of 2% Jared Frazier uh, also serves in a capacity with GVLT too. And um, just everyone has had, had, has spoken very highly of GVLT. Um, so I thought it only right to, to, get them on and, and learn more about um, you know, what it is that they do uh, and really, Taking things one step further and kind of diving into where things stand um in the valley. Um so EJ and I get to talk about a whole list of things, um, really how uh GVLT is is tackling um their mission on a day-to-day basis. Um, you know, what exactly a land trust is, because um there was a certain point in time, not terribly long ago, where uh, I wasn't entirely sure how land trusts worked and and operated um so we got to dive into that and really the again the the process that they're taking how they are um, choosing and selecting these you know tracts of land that they're looking to uh, preserve and conserve i guess and how that whole operation works um you know for anyone Um, that may be kind of in the know, the, the Gallatin Valley, that kind of whole part of Montana uh, over the past decade has just been growing by leaps and bounds. And with that growth comes a lot of, you know, new development, um, a lot of expansion to Bozeman, to that area. uh, And in turn that brings along, um, you know, habitat that a lot of these, wild animals um, are using having to relocate uh, or farmers are selling off land and a lot of these these pieces where you know crops and, and different things were grown are, are no longer being used so it's um, there's a lot of different things that go into the selection process and just uh, the selection process of the land but also just the entire process of how uh, they are going about that. Um, the, the trail systems that GVLT has helped implement, um, around, uh, the Bozeman area, uh, is another one that they take great pride in, uh, for all the people, you know, Bozeman is kind of this, this Mecca of the outdoors and, and not just for, for hunters and anglers, just for outdoor recreationists in general. Um, there's just a whole list of things that you can do while you're out there and they want to make sure that they're making that, um, accessible. So, this was a, a great conversation. I've learned a ton um, about, you know, how how the land trust works um, and really kind of the state of the valley in general. So uh, episode 124 with EJ Porth from the Gallatin Valley Land Trust. Uh, enjoy everybody. Uh, today's episode is going to be brought to you by Hunt. And if you haven't, now is a great opportunity to take advantage of Hunt's new Explorer membership for their mapping system uh, right now. If you purchase a explorer membership for fifty dollars, you're going to get all fifty states, which no one else out there has. That much information, um, the size maps that you're able to download uh, offline for your scouting purposes, for your hunting purposes, are um, you know there's no one else in the game that's doing it like that. But fifty dollars, all fifty states, plus you're going to get fifty dollars to use towards their gear shop. All you have to do when you're checking out, use the code AVERAGE um, at checkout there to, <clears throat> excuse me, to apply and um, be sure to cash in on that. I mean, not only do they have their mapping um, platform and their Explorer membership, that's tremendous, um, Go Hunt is a one-stop shop for every hunter uh, that's out there. Um, Western hunting, whitetail hunting, uh, whatever the case is. Uh, Go Hunt has something for you. So be sure, head over to GoHunt.com and check out their Explorer membership. Good morning, EJ. Welcome to the show. How are you?
2: Good. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, no. You know, honestly, this conversation feels a little overdue because ever since I started the podcast, and especially as I'm talking to uh, businesses and whatnot in uh, kind of the greater Bozeman area, GVLT is one that has come up countless times like it's almost there's there's certain parts of conversations where especially if it's the business in that area I'm like oh you know like what organizations or who are you giving back to are you working with and nine times out of ten if it's someone from the area GVLT is um, someone who they're giving back to so I'm super glad that uh, Jared was able to make this introduction and we can get you on
2: yeah I'm excited that's awesome to hear I uh I'm grateful that we have that kind of wide community embrace and I'm super grateful to all the 2% business partners that give back to us and volunteer. A lot of them get out on our trails every summer. So we love them back.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's great. I love the kind of the community aspect of not only, um, you know, what GVLT has, the greater Bozeman area, the, you know, the 2% business, it's all, you know, from someone, you know, sitting here in Michigan and, and just being able to talk to people that are, you know, out there and, and involved, like it's super motivating. And I love to see like how many times people are like, oh yeah, like we work with GVLT and, you know, we have like this, this partnership or this program set up with them. I'm like, that's, it's just great to see the, the partnership, the, the drive that everyone has for their, their local community.
2: Yeah, we're super grateful.
1: So before we get into GVLT, EJ, tell me a bit about yourself.
2: Okay. Uh, I was born and raised in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I was a self-proclaimed city girl. Um, To be (laughs) totally frank, like not, you know, didn't spend a lot of time in the outdoors. I went to summer camp in northern Minnesota every summer, and that was sort of my my hit that I got every year. But um, I never really had a a strong connection. But interestingly enough, my folks did. And we spent um, a lot of time on our vacations in Red Lodge, Montana, which is about two and a half hours east of Bozeman, um, right outside of Yellowstone National Park. And my parents are avid fly fisher people, and they love to hike, and they love to ski. And absolutely loved being in montana and i never you know all those years it's just it wasn't clicking for me i i kind of resisted it and um ended up at school in chicago and then um, my folks moved to red lodge full-time and on my summers when i was not at school i would come back and you know waitress in red lodge and just try to <laughs> try to make my way and um it wasn't until then that I really got to experience Montana through my own eyes, not just through what my parents told me I should appreciate. And I met a number of friends that took me out and just showed me a different side of of the outdoors. We spent a lot of time camping and backpacking and hiking and jumping into rivers and you know just. Um, living that like young 20 something.
1: (laughs) Oh, those are the days.
2: Yeah. I totally fell in love with it. And I think, I think what happened was I, I think I really started to question whether the city was really somewhere that I wanted to be. Um, And so long story short, uh, ended up in Montana after college, Chicago just like, didn't feel like a fit. Ended up in Bozeman and actually, for most of my years here, I was working in the social services nonprofit. So I worked at a domestic violence shelter. I was working with um, teenagers, and, like kind of at-risk youth, and I loved it. Um, kind of got burnt out on that. It's really hard work, and I started to look around. and A friend of mine said, "You know, you should look at the land trust." And I was like, "You know, I was like, I like, I like the outdoors. Obviously, I live in Montana, but I had always thought that conservation was this." Um, didn't connect with that word. I didn't consider myself a conservationist. I like benefited from all the things that recreation conservation organizations do, but I had never had a feeling of ownership over that word. Um, I also I think I might have felt intimidated by it. Like, well, I don't have a degree in you know natural resources, or you know, I uh, I'm not a hunter. I'm not this extreme backcountry athlete because in Bozeman. <laughs> You know, you get the extreme versions of all of those um, everywhere you look. And I, I also felt like a lot of conservation groups um, weren't really speaking to me. Like, like they didn't need me. They kind of had their their core group of people, their conservation people, and, and I wasn't one of them. Um, and I actually did a little more digging on the land trust and was like, wow, actually – Land Trusts, and particularly GBLT, have this really cool thing in that um, they're really about community, and community is my thing. People are my thing, and so when I realized that what Land Trusts do is serve as that connection point, that liaison between people and the community and the land, and then also that the land serves as a way for community to connect to each other, I was like, wow, this is this isn't just protecting land for land's sake, although I believe that that is important. This is, connect, this is conserving land um, for people, for community, to make community stronger. And I went to the interview and was like, I don't think you guys are speaking to people like me. Um, and that's probably a bad thing. You need to expand the tent, and bring in more people that are just like me, who don't have a background in conservation, I can help you translate. I can help you in communications. talk to the people that don't know that this is their thing. And um, I think that was a benefit to the land trust to have me once they hired me to be able to just um, make the case to people that weren't already on the team. And um, I've been with the land trust now for eight and a half years. And I'm now the associate director and absolutely love my job all the time.
1: No, I mean that's first off, that's a bold strategy going into an interview, right? <laughs> like, this is what you're doing wrong. This is how I can I how I think yeah. I can help, you know, rectify yeah. this problem and your shortcomings. But I it think you're like, absolutely right.
2: About what you do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I think that's that's what and I think now more than ever, like that's kind of what conservation needs just as a whole, right? They need a a different voice. They need a younger generation. I mean, because I've talked about this with a lot of people and, you know, this is kind of across all landscapes of conservation, whether it's, you know, your your land trust, your, you know, hook and bullet type crowds or uh, organizations or whatever it is, is there's this changing of the guard. There's a, a much younger generation coming in, kind of leading the charge in conservation and speaking to, you know, different people than, than maybe our parents were accustomed to you know, when, when they were involved or when they were, um, you know, first getting started in the outdoors. And I think it's a great thing because the more people, the more eyes and ears that we can open to, you know, just the idea of conservation, however that may look, because it's different for everyone. I think Mm -hmm. the, the much better off, um, you know, our, our entire landscape is going to be.
2: Yep. I completely agree. I think what I have learned is that exactly right. Everyone has their unique connection or that moment. And I think making the word conservationist, um, turning it into like a lowercase C, you know, to be a <laughs> conservationist doesn't mean you have to like work for a conservation organization or dedicate your life or, you know, drive a Prius, compost everything, and, um, you know, recycle everything you possibly can. Like, yes, there's a lot of really great ways to take personal agency, but, um, You know, in my mind, being a conservationist means um, appreciating the land. It means, like, noticing the moments when the landscape makes you feel small or when you take a deep breath when you're on a dirt road looking out at wide open spaces. Like, it's the – I think once people can understand the ways that land and access to land benefit their lives, they'll be so much more inclined to do the things to protect it to vote for organiz- you know, vote for people who will protect the land, support organizations that will do it. But if you don't first build that appreciation, um, the action will never happen. And so I am totally focused on helping people understand in whatever way it is that they, that they appreciate the land. Cause I mean, whether it's like, Oh, I, I eat local food from the farmer's market and I love that. Or, um, you know, my family grew up farming, and I love the rural agricultural way of life. Or, um, I mean, there's there's so many different ways people connect, and and each one of them is important and valid. And you take all of those unique connections and moments together, and you can actually make some pretty cool things happen.
1: Yeah, that's that's very well put. So after you had moved out to Montana, and you had started to experience Montana through your own lens, as you put it was there, or can you recall like one particular moment, whether it was, you know, an adventure with your friends, whether it was just, you know, driving, whatever it was that you can, that you kind of said to yourself, this is where I need to be. This is what I should be doing.
2: Oh man, that's a good question. Um, you know I don't know that there was a specific moment that summer but first summer I was out in Montana I did a lot of things I'd never done before and I remember like going on my first backpacking trip and <laughs> kind of like oh my gosh what am I getting myself into that <laughs> feeling of um, being like really self sufficient and getting yourself out there and then being really alone I um, I wasn't by myself, but I I don't know. I think there was a confidence that I gained from those experiences. Um, And I think part of what was always a barrier to me with the outdoors is that there is a level of intimidation, like to really experience the outdoors. It often requires some gear, you know, some, some skills, some experience. And if you didn't grow up in a family that was, you know, even though my parents were doing some of that, i wasn't I wasn't picking it up. Um, the The comfort level was never there for me, and so I think the outdoors felt like something that I couldn't do and therefore decided I didn't want to do. And then once I had people to really introduce me to it and build my confidence in it, I was able to appreciate it. And I think that's sort of another lesson learned for the outdoor community, and I think it's happening a lot more. idea of like mentorship and sharing your adventures and hobbies and um sports with other people you know something like hunting for example it's like really hard to get into if you've never done it before don't know people do it Um, so i i love the idea of community conservation groups serving as like a an entry point you know we do a lot of um like guided trail walks here right in town And there, you would not believe how many people are like, I've never been on this trail because I didn't have anyone to go with. And I didn't know where it was going to lead me to. And I thought I was going to get lost and I didn't know where to park. Like the confidence is what keeps a lot of people from these experiences. Um, So the more we can provide them with those like baby step opportunities and mentorship, the better.
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And that's one of the things I hear a lot of people talk about, when trying to get into to some type of outdoor activity is that barrier to entry. They just, they don't know where to start. They don't know what they don't know. And it's, yeah, especially as an adult, like that's super intimidating to try to get into something that you have no idea what you're doing with. And to to have someone that, like you said, can, can help you take those baby steps, kind of hold your hand for a little bit. I think that that, you are you were right. It, it helps build that confidence. And it's amazing what a little bit of self-confidence will do to a person, regardless of their endeavor, endeavor whether it's the outdoors, a new job, hobby, whatever it is. Once they see that they can do it, um, it's kind of the sky's the limit.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So, EJ, tell me exactly what GVLT does and kind of what their mission is. Yeah,
2: have you uh, interviewed anyone that works with a land trust yet on your podcast?
1: You know, I don't believe that I have. Not the, no, no one that works directly for a land trust. I've okay. had people who have, you know, kind of volunteered their time with them or had some type of affiliation, but not an actual employee of a land trust.
2: Great, great. Well, I'm going to maybe start with just what is a land trust because... You had mentioned that there are people that listen to this that live in all corners of the country. And what's really cool about Land Trust is that there's probably one in your neighborhood. (laughs) Um, We are a nonprofit, but all of us use really a similar tool. We, We use real estate to achieve conservation impact, and we work with private land. And sometimes that's making private land publicly accessible, but sometimes it's just making sure that the conservation values that are present on public, on private land um, stay the way they are, and are not threatened by development or fragmentation of that property. So um, if you are pretty much anywhere in the United States, um, if you go to the land trust Alliance, which is like our overarching kind of umbrella membership organization, you'll find one in your area. And we all are a little bit different and we're all, very much tailored to fit the needs of our community and the landscape that we work in and the conservation values that we're hoping to protect. But I think it's really cool that we have this sort of amazing network of nonprofits that all have this sort of similar thread. So in the Gallatin Valley, we're super lucky. um, We have lots of public land here. But what we know is that, you know, our area's most iconic critters, like your moose and your bear and um, your elk, they don't know private-public boundaries. Um, rivers move through private and public lands. Um, so in order to preserve that really critical habitat, we can't just rely on public lands. Um, there is great public lands, that, um, and there's organizations that protect pr- public lands. But if we don't also protect the adjacent private lands, we're sort of missing... You know, an example of that is like the private lands that are on the foothills of the mountains. You know, elk move through there and they use it as calving grounds. And it's important that there's not houses right along the edge of the public boundary. Right. Um, So wildlife habitat and clean rivers and streams is certainly a conservation value that we seek to protect on private land. Um, We also are really interested in making sure that agricultural land is viable for the future. We need people to grow our food. Um, our state's been blessed with really great soils and so, and, you know, fifth generation farming communities that are really interested in continuing that tradition. And so our work is also aimed at protecting the, the soils to grow food for our country and grow food for our community. Local food is something we focus on as well. Um, and the way that we conserve these values is by partnering with landowners. So the tool that we use is called a conservation easement. It's like a really kind of wonky legal tool, but essentially what it is is a voluntary agreement with a landowner where they are giving up a portion of their development rights. So we are working with, you know, your bucket of private property rights. The landowner is voluntarily um, giving away their ability to develop the property, split it into multiple pieces, for example, um, anything that would threaten those conservation values. And then those rights are transferred to the land trust and held in perpetuity. The landowner still owns their land. They still can sell it. They can give it to their heirs. Um, but it has this encumbrance on it forever. And as a land trust, our job is to ensure that that original agreement is upheld. And there's some financial benefits and some tax benefits, which I'm not going to go into because they're wonky. But <laughs> it's, a, it's a way for a landowner to stay on the land. Often it's a really good option for them if they um, have financial needs to be able to stay put rather than selling. Um, And it's a way for us to keep large properties intact um, and and adjacent to other large properties. We're creating these big blocks of open space that can serve wildlife, that can be farmed, that can prevent um, erosion into the creeks and rivers and keep that water cool and clear for the fishies. so conservation easements is how we get that done. We've had 50,000 acres conserved around the Gallatin Valley Park County, which is um, the the home of the Yellowstone show. And so if you've seen that, you'll know there's a lot of development pressure over there. And we also work into Madison County. Um, so kind of Southwest Montana. And then just really briefly, a lot of land trusts do this. We have another component of our work where we actually build tra- trail systems. And so While our conservation work happens sort of in the the area outside of our city, we're also really focused on connecting people to nature. Um, Those private lands don't always allow for public access, and so our trails are the way that we connect people to the outdoors, build that sense of appreciation and connection, um, and so that's trails within the city, but also connecting people north and south to the mountains and, and really into experiences in nature. So that's the gist. There's probably so much more I missed, but I'll let you ask a question.
1: <laughs> no, I mean that's that <clears throat> that's a ton of information. If if that's the cliff notes version, yeah, I could see uh how there would be <laughs> people can kind of how you can get into the weeds a little bit. But yep. I think it's all the things that you just talked about are so vital to areas especially like Bozeman that has seen such an influx of people over the last probably 10 to 15 years whether it's, you know, retirees, um, you know, just wanting a maybe a slower pace of life, um, whether it's, you know, those outdoor recreationists who want to be at kind of the, you know, they want to move to kind of the Mecca uh, of the outdoors and, you know, the, the, the greater Bozeman area. And with that comes, yeah, urban sprawl development, all those things that are, you know, disintegrating our, our wild places around us. So how is it that you guys are, are kind of, um, choosing or approaching these landowners um, for these um, conservation easements.
2: That's a, a great question. Um, you're absolutely right. This valley's growing really quickly. Um, we're one of the fastest micropolitan areas in the country, fastest-growing county in Montana. Um, people are coming here, and for good reason. It's it's beautiful, but we are at risk of losing the very things that make us all want to be here, and so. When it comes to conservation, we have to be really strategic. Um, Land in this valley is getting converted into residential use from agricultural use at an alarming rate. And so the strategy can't be just, you know, conserve as much as you possibly can, because unfortunately we don't have the resources to protect everything. So our strategy has been how do we conserve the most critical lands that are most threatened? And that sometimes, unfortunately, means saying no. Um, For example, you know, a property that's sort of right in the path of development where there's available water sewer and there's a subdivision next door, even though it might have some of the best soils in the state, which this is a true story. There are incredible soils in the state that are um, now growing houses. You um, might have to say, you know, that's not a strategic conservation opportunity for us because it will eventually, and in the near future, be surrounded by housing developments and will become a weed patch in a bunch of people's private backyard. Um, and so what we've done is we've done a parcel analysis of this entire valley, and including Park County, which is the um, Paradise Valley next to us, and said, you know, what layering all the conservation values we look at, water, wildlife, and working lands. What are the most valuable properties from those perspectives? We're looking at where have we had conservation success in the past so that we can build on essentially puzzle pieces and get these large blocks of land, which are better for wildlife and also for farming. You know, that economy is a scale. They need a big chunk of land to be able to move their equipment and and make it pencil out. So we look at that. Um, We look at the size of the parcels. So, You know, a 12 acre parcel, even though I'm sure it's beautiful and there's a moose that hangs out there periodically, um, might not compete with some of the larger projects that are coming to us. We are super lucky in that a lot of landowners are now reaching out to us to do conservation easements. We do some targeted outreach to people that have really special properties, but we have more work than we can get done. Um, Getting work, getting these easements done requires oftentimes some large funding pools. Um, So we do partner with the Natural Resource Conservation Service at the federal level, and then we have a county program here as well. Um, But it also requires staff time, which is fueled by donor dollars. And so there's always that capacity limitation, um, and it just makes us more strategic, more choosy, more picky. Um, But I'm I'm excited that we've just done a strategic plan and identified the focal areas in our valley that are most focused on and really doubling down in those areas to create big conservation impact and and the outcome of that is that we can't decide where the growth in this valley is going to happen that's not a tool that we use but we can work with landowners to decide where it shouldn't happen and that's what we're focused on where are those special places that we all believe really should stay the way they are
1: yeah, no, that's uh, <clears throat> that's really good. Now you mentioned the you know the if you have a, a landowner who let's say owns you know twelve or fifteen twenty acres and it's like you said it's it's a beautiful piece of land but it may not compete with um, you know maybe someone you know maybe not too far but has a much bigger tract of land. So, in does it kind of vary or in your experience is it primarily like? you know, two, 300 acre lots or, or, you know, even much bigger than that, that you guys are really trying to focus on?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. We get asked it a lot. Um, it really does. I I hate this answer. It depends. (laughs) Um, so an example would be, we have conservation easements that are 20 acres, let's say, but they are along the East Galton river, which is a really important fishery and, you know, have a, a quite a bit of river frontage. Um, that is a property that, is worth it to us because of the river frontage. Yeah. Um, if it was being conserved for agricultural purposes, a 20 acre piece is not going to be um, probably the best fit for farming. Let's say um, I think, you know, a lot of the projects we do um, on our typical projects, probably on the smaller side are that 200 to 300 acre, Size. Um, A lot of the farms and ranches in this valley have have already been sort of chopped up. Um, But that being said, we have projects in the pipeline now, anywhere from a thousand to three thousand acres. And so it really depends. Um, Obviously, the big ones are great, but if we can fit together some of the ones and kind of put that open space back together a bit, um, we're also interested in doing that. So. If you go to other parts of Montana, you'll see, you know, I was just talking to some folks on the Highline, Line, and um, farmers and ranchers up there own like 20,000 acres. And so, wow. and yes, yeah, um, there's not development pressure up there. And so we are really focused on the most important land. And sometimes that means taking um, conserving land that's a little bit smaller than some of the other organizations might. Because we know it's important to this community and going to change the way this community looks forever.
1: Yeah. And I, I, that, that totally makes sense um, as far as, <clears throat> excuse me, the the types um, or I guess really what the the parcel um, has to offer in terms of, of wildlife and the benefits for conserving that land. So like you said, a, a 20 acre piece, but has, you know, a ton of riverfront, Um, yeah, you want to make sure that that's not being developed. And then those waters are being polluted. The riverbanks are being eroded. And then, you know, the fish population is being damaged um, in that area. So, no, that that, that makes total sense. What are some of the biggest issues that you guys are facing as an organization when trying to, you know, develop these partnerships, either with, you know, local organizations or local landowners?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's so many challenges. And I think I could flip them all into opportunities pretty quickly. There you go. (laughs) <laughs> the the pace of development here, I think it's really unprecedented and it's all over the West. I'm not going to say that Bozeman is, um, unique in any way. I think there's a like national migration of people to places like this for quality of life and, um, remote work has changed a lot. And there's this like nostalgic and romantic idea of Montana. And so when people come here, um, they don't want to live in an apartment downtown. They want a 20-acre piece um, right outside of town with, you know, their little ranchette. And I get that. Um, but that's part of the challenge of what we're facing is that the we are gobbling up more land than we need to because um, people are kind of taking their piece. And we're taking land out of production. We're putting homes in really sensitive habitats because that's where people want to live like they want to live where the elk calves because it's beautiful um and so that that pace is hard to match it's we're rising to the challenge the community sees the need i think part of why you get a lot of folks um that you talked to mentioning gvlt is because you'd be blind if you didn't see what was happening here. I mean, every every week it seems like there's a new subdivision going in. So we're trying to keep up. That's always a challenge. Um, you know, landowners, I think all land trusts face this challenge, but uh, making a decision as a landowner to conserve your land in perpetuity is, is a big decision. And when a lot of these farmers and ranchers have developers knocking on their door every day with, you know, obscene numbers that any farmer or rancher, has ne- you know, they've never heard these numbers before. They're, they're astronomical. Um, they have really hard decisions to make. Farming is hard. It's not always profitable. And to make a decision that will limit the, you know, future value of your land forever and for your kids is, is a hard decision. And so um, we really respect that. And sometimes it means that landowners just need to think for a long time. Um, but we we kind of play the long game. Like land is is a big deal. And um, if it takes someone a while to get to that decision, or even if they decide not to do it, um, land trusts work in this kind of amazing space where we are using private property rights and decisions are left up to landowners. And so um, while that's hard at times, I think it makes our work stronger because it's really um, put in the hands of the people who live here. Um, and not some kind of pop-down regulatory um, conservation tool, which, you know, those are great too, I'm sure. Um, ours is really about what is the vision of the people that have worked the land for a long time and appreciate what they have.
1: Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> conservation is the the ultimate long game. And I think the more you're in it, the more you realize that because so many people are used to or, well, not used to, so many people want that instant gratification. They want the results right now. And that's, Mm -hmm. that is certainly, it is certainly, that has certainly become more of the, the norm in recent years, I think, especially with the internet and social media and all that, like everyone just wants everything and they want it now, but to, for, for landowners specifically to be able to, to have that foresight, because like you said, these people are being offered money that is not only going to change their life. It's going to change future generations, generations Mm -hmm. of their families' lives and they have, I mean, that's that's a tough decision for anyone. And especially yep. if you figure, you know, maybe they're, you know, fourth generation ranchers. It's all that they know. Yeah. It's all they've ever known. And they have this love and this pride for what they do, for their land, for, you know, everything that inhabits their land. And to just give that all up for, you know, the almighty dollar, I mean, that's, that's not as easy as a lot of people think it is.
2: Yeah, it, it's a really... It's a good point. And you know, what we find is that farmers and ranchers are the best stewards we have of the land. They are great to it. And so I think for some people they're like, well, you know, I'm never going to sell this land. I'm good to this land. And to help them imagine a world where they're gone and their kids are in a hard position um, and they can't harm it anymore. Like, um, the future is uncertain, and that makes conservation easements both hard to do and also a really good option. Because a landowner that loves their property, doing an easement gives them that peace of mind that when they're gone, their farm will never be a housing development. Um, and for some landowners that love the land, that's a great option. For some, it's hard to it's hard to get to that point, and and we totally get it. Um, I really like that we we don't choose the hard sell option. Um, we have an option and it's important that landowners know it's available. Um, but land is, land is a big deal. Like things that we do with our land, whether we develop it, conserve it, put a trail on it. Um, these are really long lasting impacts. They're not things that can be undone. And so as, you know, as you can imagine, then like, these are all really big decisions. They're expensive decisions. They're time consuming and, um, whether it's building trails or conserving land, I think that that long, that long view, that patience and that um, perseverance is something that, and like that tenacity to just kind of stick with it because we're making huge mistakes and huge wins for generations of people that aren't even born yet. And that, that's a heavy weight to carry. That's a heavy weight for landowners to carry, for developers to carry, for community members to carry, and we don't take it lightly. So hard work. <laughs>
1: where where do you see the kind of the state of, you know, the the valley in the next, you know, 10 to 15 years?
2: Ooh, gosh, it depends on the day, my answer. Um, <laughs> I mean I'll be days where I'm like, ah, give up. Like the the money that is coming here and the forces are so strong, it feels sometimes like um, Someone once told us this analogy of, like, you're bringing a butter knife to a gunfight. And, and there are times feels feel that. Not even ways. a
1: sharp knife. Not even a sharp
2: knife. And yet, um, every time I feel myself getting discouraged, I'm reminded that, like, our community is all in. Um, we had our most successful fundraiser ever this month um, or last month. And we get these wins with these landowners who are, like, so committed to this place. Um, that I think there is there is hope here and what I what I hope for this valley and I, I think it's possible is that we take a moment to just decide what's really important to us and it might require making some personal sacrifices about what our land use looks like, what our personal consumption of land looks like, Um What our recreation habits look like. To be honest, I think Montana's always had a little bit of like this extractionist um, mindset. Like, not only is our our top industries, um, you know, farming, ranching, mining, logging um, for so long, but recreation is also a a consumptive industry. Tourism is a consumptive industry and extractive. And so, Um, we are pushing people into really sensitive areas. People come here with um, a bit of an entitled idea about what a Montana experience is for them. And what I hope is that the people that come here with that idea of what can Montana bring me, they also build an ethic around what can I do for Montana? What can I do to leave this place better than I found it? And, And sometimes that means like, yeah, you might have to put your dog on a leash because there's wildlife in the area. Or um, maybe you shouldn't go to that area right now because it's a really critical time. Um, There's all sorts of examples of people's personal agency sort of sacrificing what they want for the greater good. And I'm, I'm hoping that we understand that we all need to do our little part in order to we're going to love this place to death if we don't start um, thinking about ourselves as contributing to this snowball effect.
1: That's a really, Um, yeah, that's a really interesting phrase. Love ourselves to death because it's so true. And it like, that's, it's kind of a heavy statement. The, if you think about it, just because, I mean, I can't remember the name of the movie, but you just love something so much that you just, you kill it, right? You smother it. You don't give it a chance to breathe and to grow and to let it do its thing. And before you know, I mean, more we're not growing more land. More land is not going to be discovered or or anything right. like that. So we have to take, you know, such good care of what we do have. And for a state like Montana or, you know, even a lot of those Western states that get such an influx of of recreationists, that you know they're there for a week they're there for 10 days you know once or twice a year and they have an impact on the land even though they may not realize it because they don't live there they're only there for a short period of time but if you start right. to you know that just compounds you know on top of itself with the number of yep. people that are coming to those areas to to hunt or to fish or to camp or to backpack hike you know whatever it is and it it I've got to imagine it's hard to really quantify the amount of damage done by people who aren't even residents of Montana.
2: Right. And I think, um, the sort of flip side of that is, you know, growth is by and large, like a good thing. Like tourism is a good thing. So many of the businesses that, um, work with 2% for conservation or support GBLT like benefit from outdoor recreation as an industry being successful with people coming to Montana, the hospitality groups. So, um, there's, this, there's this fine line. It, it's not to say that people shouldn't be here because Montana is to be shared and to be loved by all. Um, it's about making sure that we all are doing what we can to sort of offset or mitigate the impact we might be having. I think there's a lot of people that would argue that um, we should just shut the door to Montana. There's enough people here, no more, um, newcomers are bad, <laughs> and I can see where that sentiment comes from, right? Like we we want to close the door behind us because um, we don't want things to change. Change is constant. It's a freight train. We can't stop it. So how do we channel all of that love for Montana that people have? Obviously they're coming here into a feeling of like shared ownership and responsibility. Um, I don't know how to do that. I think, you know, we're trying all the things we can, but there are, you know, there's great movements within even the tourism industry around sustainable tourism. And, you know, our local tourism board is now working with hotels and giving people packets of information when they come about um, how to be good to this place. You know, the campaign's called Be Good to Bozeman. Um, They get like a dog poop bag and some tips on like organizations that are doing good things. So it's, it's happening. Is it happening quick enough? I don't know. Um, But there is an awareness of it and certainly no growth is is not a good option either so it's a balancing act
1: yeah and having having that buy-in from everyone um like you mentioned from hotels to to resorts to you know just local businesses um i think is is really big and i think it it helps for you know that that tourism crowd to understand kind of the the vibe, I guess is a good way to put it of what the community is trying to do as a whole. And when you're there, you're part of, you're part of that community. You're part of that vibe. Even if it's just for a short amount of time, like, Hey, if you're coming here, like this is, this is what we're about. Right. Kind of get on board or or get out type of thing. Right.
2: Yep, exactly. And I think the risk when you are community that's growing really quickly is that there's not a lot of time for people to sort of assimilate into that culture Um, you know, there's a lot of learning via osmosis from peers about like, what is the vibe of this community? What does it mean to be a resident of the Gallatin Valley? And that is harder and harder to do when the person that you look to, to tell you how to be a good resident has also only been here for a couple months. Like, and it's no one's fault. It's just a pace thing. That's, um, that's hard. And I hope that our organization in some small way can be, a landing pad for people that are new to our community to um, show up, be in community with others who care, learn how to take care of trails, how to, how we steward the land. Um, we get a lot of newcomers that reach out to us within the first couple months of being here. And I love that. Like, I love that we can be um, the group that helps them learn about this place that they now call home and, and, Um, we're really lucky that we are one of the organizations in town that, that kind of is a catch all for, for those people that are joining us.
1: Yeah. EJ, what is it that you love most about your job? What is it that, that gets you out of bed in the morning that keeps you motivated, um, to, to kind of continue to fight this good fight when, like you said, there's days where you just kind of want to throw in the towel because it it seems like you're never going to reach the top of the hill and it's always going to be this battle.
2: Um, I love a lot of things about my job. I love I love my community. I love um, being part of something. I like I like creating places where people can connect with each other. Um, In so many ways I feel like GDLT is the beacon of hope for people in our valley that see the change happening and makes them feel out of control, it makes them feel anxious. I mean, it, it, it's like having this thing that you love that um, is changing before your eyes or people are, are taking their pieces out. I mean, it's, there are people in this valley that are like have, are grieving. And I think GBLT and the work that we do is this light that's like, but maybe maybe things can be different. Maybe we can hold on to what we love here. Maybe there's a chance. Um, and every time we, like, protect a farm or build a trail or, um, you know, any of these these project wins, we get this just outpouring of support. Like, it, it feels like a win for everybody. Um, it's a win for the landowner. It's a win for the people that live here. Obviously, it's a win for GVLP. And I, I just like that we are working on behalf of everybody around this shared value of land. And working toward a future where, um, things won't be the same, but the things that we love will be here for our kids and our kids, kids. So that is really gratifying. Our team here is amazing. Our supporters are amazing. And, um, even when things are discouraging, I I feel like we are still making a huge impact and uh, that feels good.
1: Yeah. That the, the sentiment of that, the, Wanting to be a part of something bigger, part of the change, part of the future, even though you're not going to be around for that future, um, is kind of an overlying theme that <clears throat> that I see or that I get from people that that work in the conservation spaces. They they know the importance. They know it's not going to be for going to be here forever. So how can how can they help ensure that it is to the best of of their ability? Because yeah, when when you, know, you have something or someone that you want to enjoy these places as much as you do, um, it, it kind of makes you look and reevaluate the way that um, you're using the landscape.
2: Yeah. I, so I was um, last week up on in the Northern part of Montana on the Rocky boy reservation. And one of the tribal leaders um, just said this beautiful thing and I, and I've heard it before, but it really rung true hearing it from him. he was like, this land does not belong to us this land we are caretakers of this land for our children and the idea of all the decisions that we're making now are may not impact us but they will definitely impact future generations and it is our responsibility and our duty to do right by them um and i i I think that's a huge um burden and and responsibility but it's so well put like the land you know even though we work with (laughs) private landowners um the land is something that has been given to us it's sacred it's special and um we can't take that lightly um we are just taking care of it for
1: for the future I, Mm. i
2: just think it's a beautiful way to think about it
1: yeah yeah absolutely EJ, before I let you get out of here, where can people find more about the GVLT? Um, How can they get involved? Where can they get all that information at?
2: Yeah, we are on the World Wide Web at (laughs) gvl.org. There's lots of information there. You know, we are also really committed to just being an open book and an easily accessible organization for anybody and everybody. So I welcome phone calls and emails and coffee dates. And, um... We're constantly learning and listening to the people that live here and um, from other groups around the country who have had success and we can um, emulate. So I guess to everyone out there, if you are interested in connecting with your local land trust, learning more about us or sharing something that's worked for you, please, please reach out. We'd be so grateful to hear from you.
1: All right. Well, EJ... Thank you so much for coming on again. It was it was long overdue. Um, continue to, to do the good work, fight the good fight there um, in the Gallatin Valley because it's a beautiful place and it's one that hopefully uh, people can continue to enjoy for generations and generations to come.
2: I appreciate that. And I'm so glad to have been invited and um, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, take care of yourself, EJ, and uh, enjoy this beautiful fall. Thanks. All right. Well, thank you again, EJ, for joining the podcast this week. Um, if you're in the Greater Bozeman area and you're looking for a way to get involved and give back, be sure to check out the GVLT. Uh, I would also like to thank the partners of the podcast: Hardside Hydration, Stone Glacier, Go Hunt. Wild Rivers Coffee, Outdoor Class, and as always, 2% for Conservation. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And over there, you're going to see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media where it's going to be only positive conservation-driven content that's landing in your feeds there. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, Stay tuned next week where we are joined by Ben O'Brien from the newly formed Hunt and Common. Uh, Great, great conversation um, with Ben and uh, one that you guys will certainly enjoy as well. So until next week, stay safe out there. And remember that conservation starts with you.